Hong Kong is on the brink. Injuries, there were arrests. Beijing has described the pro-democracy protests as, quote, conduct close to terrorism. The central government would not sit on its hands and watch. Demonstrators have been taken to the streets with no signs of protests coming to a halt. It's a smaller group of people, but very intense. The violence is being ratcheted up. But protesters say it's all too little, too late. This uproar has resurrected long-standing conflicts between Hong Kong and China. Could Hong Kong be headed toward another Tiananmen Square? In this new podcast, we follow what's happening on the ground in Hong Kong and talk to experts who are looking ahead to what will happen next. I'm Andrew Schwartz with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. This is Hong Kong on the Brink. Welcome to Hong Kong on the Brink. I'm Jude Blanchett, and with me today is Ben Bland, director of the Southeast Asia Program at the Lowy Institute in Australia and author of the 2016 book, Generation HK, Seeking Identity in China's Shadow. In today's episode, we discuss a wide range of topics, including the ongoing cycle of violence between protesters and the Hong Kong police and the controversy with the NBA and what it means for international companies trying to navigate the volatility of U.S.-China tensions. So, Ben, thanks for joining the podcast. I wanted to start out with a discussion of what happened over the weekend. We saw Friday, the Hong Kong government announced that it was going to use this emergency regulations ordinance, which they haven't used since 1967. This gives the government a really broad swath of powers to essentially put in place any law that they need to to protect the political stability of, of Hong Kong. And they used this in the first instance specifically to ban face masks. Uh, which they argued were a security threat because people were hiding behind these. And as we saw, the reaction was, I think, as many of us predicted, which was total and open defiance. I'd like you to take stock of the events over the weekend, the levels of violence, and where you think that puts us in terms of the direction of events in Hong Kong and any possibility of a, of a resolution. Well, certainly as a practical measure, it looks like the mask ban failed if you take the government at its word that this was intended to reduce the level of violence. But I almost wonder if this is exactly what they wanted, if this was indeed an effort to sort of antagonize and escalate and poke uh, the protesters on the streets to try and blow things up and then justify the use of further powers under the very, very broad ranging emergency powers ordinance there. So it's it's an uncertain question for me why exactly they did this. But if it was their stated reason, it's certainly been an absolute disaster. And over the weekend, we had people adding a potential sixth demand, uh, not confirmed yet. And you can't confirm it because this is a leaderless movement. But they're now talking about the call to disband the police. And that's partly linked to this to this mask ban, as well as many other things. You know, we were just talking before we pressed uh, record here on the issue of violence. A week and a half ago, we had the first use of live ammunition by the Hong Kong police. We had uh, over the weekend this uh, undercover police officer who, uh, if you look at the video footage, looks like potentially accidentally shot a 14-year-old and did so under situation I think you could call of extreme duress. There was a, a Molotov cocktail thrown at him and he had been surrounded and, and beaten. You also had the footage, I think this was last Friday, of a J.P. Morgan uh, employee who, as he was entering into the building, said in Chinese, you know, we're, we're all Chinese, and he was then sucker punched. As we're watching this from Washington, D.C., or watching this from Australia, one of the things is it's it's difficult to make sense of or to balance 
how much violence there is on either side, right? So both sides have an incentives to essentially curate how we're consuming information. And so for the protesters, they're only putting out clips of, of police violence and brutality, and again, rightfully so, that should be covered. And on the other side, we're seeing people who are maybe favoring Beijing on this side of the Hong Kong government, only putting out clips of the protesters engaged in violent behavior or rioting. How do you calibrate and make sense of, of the levels of violence? Because this is really a struggle for narrative on both sides and both sides trying to delegitimize the other. Can you just give me your thoughts on how you try to think this through? Well, I think one thing that everyone can agree on is there's clearly a spiral of violence and escalation of violence on all sides. And at a certain point um, when the conflict goes so deep and this goes beyond this protest movement, I think, to the deeper issues in Hong Kong, it's pointless to say you did this first, you did that first. It's clear there's just a spiral and no one's going to have one righteous answer. Um, so I think that's the first thing. There is no sort of perfect protester in, in Hong Kong. This is a really difficult movement against a very, very powerful adversary. And what's more interesting to me in a way than how we see it is how people on the ground see it. And what, when I've been talking to friends and contacts in Hong Kong, the fascinating thing is that you talk to moderate people who themselves would never use any violence against the police or vandalize buildings or symbols of authority. And they're very, very reluctant still to condemn the more violent acts. And that's fascinating to me, even though um, it's clear it's pushing a line of what they're comfortable with, people stand with it. And when I ask them, they, they talk about a few reasons. One, they will say that you know the police started this and they're much worse. Uh, I'm not saying I agree or disagree, but that's what people say. And two, they'll say, what other option do people have? And what do you expect? And thirdly, they'll say, we know that what led to the failure of the Occupy movement in a way was this disunity. And we certainly saw that afterwards when uh, the democracy camp spent more time fighting with itself um, than with the Hong Kong government or Beijing. And I think there's a very deliberate attempt to maintain unity. So I think that's more interesting to me in a way than how we feel about it, because we can't imagine that there's a perfect way to oppose um, a communist party in Hong Kong that ultimately controls all the key levers. So it's very difficult for people and they're clearly trying trying different things. There are obviously those as well who want on the streets to escalate uh, the violence. They're calling and trying to antagonize the police so that they hit back harder so that, you know, what do they say? If we burn, you burn with us. Um, so there are those guys too. But interestingly to me is that the moderate pro-democracy supporters, lots of them are uncomfortable with it, but they won't condemn it. Yeah, I guess the reason that I think, at least in the United States, it's important for us to have a good calibration is we actually have legislation you know, that's moving through Congress right now. And a lot of that is based upon how we frame the righteousness or not of the movement. And so this is an issue that is now, as folks from both sides of the aisle have said in Congress, that this is an issue that is important to U.S. national interest, whether you agree with that or not. And so having that perspective, I, I think, is going to be important. If I could jump yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think there are two different debates here. Right? One is the debate about what's happening on the ground and why, and maybe is it effective or not within a Hong Kong context. Then there is clearly the debate about how that affects actual policy overseas. But there's two. You know, that's different from how we right. sort of feel about it, yeah. right? But I agree. Obviously, the more violence you have from protesters, the harder it is for politicians in the U.S. or elsewhere to take a stand alongside Hong. 
Hong Kongers. So it's clearly going to have some impact and it will undermine the efforts of those you know, democracy activists who've been over here uh, lobbying Congress to do something about what's going on in Hong Kong. So I, I agree with you on that point. I think it's almost it's a linked but almost a different debate from why things are happening on the ground because yeah. you can't expect that you know people who are on the front lines are necessarily going to be thinking about the impact on the political debate externally but the challenge obviously for the movement is how to try and integrate when they have no leaders and all these diverse opinions to your 2017 book generation hong kong seeking identity in china's shadow which was written after the 2014 umbrella protest movement and it seems to me that we're in a completely different sort of epoch here in terms of these protests many of the concerns underlying concerns are the same and many of the actors are, are, are the same, but it just seems like this is a, a lot has happened in the five years since the umbrella protests. One of the things that's really distinct to me about, about what we're seeing now is, or at least is a entirely different volume setting from where we were in 2014, is this issue of separate identity, right? And so we're now seeing these proto symbols of unique sovereignty, like a national anthem. We saw that scene in the shopping mall the other day where there were people sort of declaring uh, uh, the formation of a new government. Can you talk to me about what you see as really having changed since, since 2014, especially on this issue of political identity and cultural identity? Are we really seeing uh, a now a firm break in separation between, let's say, Hong Kongers and, and the mainland? Or do you think these, this rupture can be healed? It certainly seems to me that we've crossed a bridge and there is no going back from where we are now. And I do see the rise of Hong Kong nationalism. And obviously, it's been given a huge turbo boost by these protests, by the government response to it. So, you know, the repression is really um, pushing this beast along, if you like. But I think that the signs were all there before to me. And I think that that's why I wrote the book, because Everyone was talking about sort of political factors in Hong Kong, the, the frustration with the lack of democracy, which is real. A lot of talk about uh, socioeconomic issues, tiny flats, low graduate salaries, etc. I think those are, those are issues that are there. But the thing that seemed different to me, particularly, was this question of identity, and that young people, um, you know, more than others in Hong Kong, really felt that their identity was being squeezed by China's growing encroachments in Hong Kong into the political system, the legal system, also just sort of space on the streets, the number of immigrants from the mainland, etc. So I think people felt that identity was threatened. And I think that's why we've seen such a strong visceral reaction, because we know psychologically when people's sense of self comes under pressure, comes under threat, people are willing to take a lot of risk to push back. So I think it's become much more clear, but I think the signs were there. And it's fascinating how fast things have moved. So just three or four years ago, after the Umbrella Revolution, uh, we saw people started booing the Chinese national anthem at football matches, soccer matches uh, in Hong Kong, many of which I attended. And now they've moved from booing the Chinese national anthem to writing their own. And a few weeks ago, I was at a pro-Hong Kong protest in Sydney, and people were singing this anthem, Glory to Hong Kong, there. So it's fascinating how it's moved. And I see you know, an effort, basically, by people to write their own nation into existence, to write their own story. And to me, there are a lot of similarities with other societies that have emerged from colonialism, in look at Southeast Asia before the Second World War, uh, to become independent nations. I'm not saying that people want independence specifically, or that this will succeed. And I think there's a difference between a nation and a state. But I think we are seeing you know, nation formation in some senses, and it's driven by young people, but there are many older people who are participating and getting dragged along with this. 
Yeah, so and I just want to stay on that point for a minute. I think that one of the reasons that issue of seeing some of the signs of independent state or nation, maybe nation is too much, but independent state, the reason we move away from that so quickly is because we understand now zooming a thousand miles north that that is now a fundamental red line for Beijing. And, you know, I'm going to quote from your old colleague, Jamil Anderlini, who has a, a piece on the Financial Times yesterday called Beijing Will Have Its Revenge on Hong Kong. And I'm just going to read a couple sentences here because I, I think they're apposite. The conclusion Beijing has drawn from the past four months of rage is the only possible one in an authoritarian, increasingly totalitarian system. They were far too soft last time. When the moment is right, they must act ruthlessly to punish Hong Kong. He goes on to write, the chances of People's Liberation Army soldiers on the streets of Hong Kong are rising every day as the violence escalates. One senior police official says privately that as many as a quarter of the officers are joining the peaceful protests in their spare time. Hated as it is right now, the Hong Kong police force is made up of Cantonese-speaking locals. Faced with a Mandarin-speaking occupying army from the north, many officers would choose to join the rebellion. This scenario would rob Beijing of the luxury to choose when and how it punishes the city, but vengeance is coming. So I want to get two things. A reaction to not only the escalating cycle of violence you talked about, but returning to this other issue of if we're perceiving these signs of a proto-nationalist movement or a nationalist movement with possible aspirations to independent statehood, right? That the, the, the status quo of coexisting with Beijing or the 2047 scenario is just unworkable now. Beijing sure as heck is also intuiting that. And so going to Jamil's point here for two reasons. One is just the disorder and chaos that is, that is now feels like a permanent feature of the city and shows no signs of, of finding an off-ramp and this independent state, statehood issue. Um, where do you come down on this issue, as, as Jamil seems to be saying, of People's Liberation Army troops in the streets of Hong Kong? That, that likelihood is increasing day by day and vengeance is coming. Well, clearly, the rise of Hong Kong nationalism is anathema to Beijing, just like any other sort of separatist or uh, regional uh, identity-based movement within China. That much is clear. But I'm not sure how much the Communist Party really understands what's going on in Hong Kong. Certainly, if you look at their official statements, they're obviously putting this all on socioeconomic reasons. And maybe that's you know to cover their behinds and say, this isn't our problem, this is the Hong Kong government. So maybe that's not what they really think. Can you just actually linger on that for a moment? Because can you just unpack why that is not a sufficient explanation, right? So, so it's not only Beijing, it's some other folks are saying, look, really the issue here is, and I'm sure I'm probably guilty of using this line at times as well, look, this is about rising income inequality, unaffordability of, of housing prices, et cetera, et cetera. Why do you think that that isn't a sufficient explanation? I think this really doesn't get to the heart of things for many reasons. One, I've spoken to probably hundreds of thousands of Hong Kongers uh, when I was doing my research and afterwards and, and since then. And it's, it's something that people say is a general frustration, but it's rarely something that people give you as their main motivation for being at a protest, forming a political party, organizing against the government. It's just not what people say. If you look at the five demands now, that's not there, right? And I think that frustrates a lot of academics, partly because, you know, the legacy of Marxian thinking, everyone wants to look for the, the fundamental real economic and social causes, if you like. And um, I think it's also because it's hard to put ourselves in, you know, the place of those protests. We don't necessarily like everything they're doing, so that it doesn't really necessarily fit with, with our worldview. But to my mind, it's not sufficient because Hong Kong's always had small flats, right? Hong Kong's always been a very squeezed city geographically. Hong Kong has social 
racial inequality, so does DC, so does London, so does Tokyo, so does Sydney, right? They have all the same problems for millennials in terms of low graduate salaries, the fact that the baby boomer generation made all the money from the property boom. So I think that's not a unique factor. And if you look at what's unique, it's the political system, this one country, two systems arrangement that to me was always, you know, a compromise that was very messy and likely to eventually unwind. And secondly, I think this identity question, which is bound up with the two political systems, I think. Um, and to me, that's what makes Hong Kong different. And that's also what I've picked up from talking to people. It doesn't mean that people aren't frustrated about these economic issues. Um, the only other thing I'd add is that this isn't a sort of lumpen proletariat protest, right? This isn't necessarily the underclass. Lots of these people are middle class people. They're students at Hong Kong's top universities. They're graduates from Harvard, LSE, other places. And there are many adults who've been arrested. I mean, with one of the recent trials, there was 97 people who were charged with rioting and other offenses in connection to one of the days of protest. About half of them were students, but there was also a doctor, a Lego salesman, a teacher, a teaching assistant, a social worker, a chef, a construction worker. You know, this isn't sort of the underclass rising up because of economic reasons. At least that's not how I see it. And that's not what I'm hearing. So the, the economic issues aren't enough. I get your point that, that they're really, this is a, this a bundle of concerns, but overriding this is really a concern about the political system. I think a lot of this is also looking out into the future of China's own political trajectory. A couple weeks ago on the show, we were talking with some folks and it was really the issue of 2047 and what happens in 2048 is fundamentally a question about what Beijing is going to look like or what China is going to look like. And under Xi Jinping, I think there are clearly concerns that the trajectory is towards more authoritarian control and a constricted shrunken space for civic participation, civil liberties, rule of law. On Jamil's second point, which is the use of force is becoming more likely day by day. Again, the, the undulations of this debate have been at the beginning uh, that was one of the first things people were saying. It's possibility of Tiananmen 2.0. I think some people pushed back against that, saying that the, it would just be far too costly for Beijing to ever consider the use of troops. It seems like this this is now with the escalating spiral of violence. Yet again, this is coming to the lips of people. And now Jamil has has put it pen to paper. Where do you come down on this? Well, I'm, I'm sure he's right that the risks are rising. But as a keen watcher of the South China Sea over the last decade, it's a bit similar. Right, The tensions are always rising or the Taiwan Strait, the tensions are always rising. And it's probably true that they are and have been, but you don't know when you're going to hit that point. And I think we have to understand when we look at history, when we look at contemporary politics as well, you know, there's this combination of deep forces and contingency, human agency and complete randomness. So I think it's so, so hard to predict something like this. And the amount of information we have on what the Chinese Communist Party really thinks about Hong Kong is so, so limited. It's very difficult for us to, to put ourselves in their shoes. I mean, the best way I can, I can think about the risk of it happening is um, there's clearly a point at which they would do it, whatever the consequences, right, where they would be so threatened. And do you have any sense of what a red line would be? My best guess would be something like people attacking a PLA barracks or reoccupying the LegCo and declaring a provisional government of an independent Hong Kong inside the LegCo and refusing to leave and the Hong Kong police unable to, to force them out. I think something like that could be a red line or maybe a Hong Kong policeman getting shot or a bomb being placed somewhere. Something like that, I would say, could be an, an obvious red, red line, but it's really, really hard to predict. And I think the risks are really high. I wouldn't look so much at the costs, because I think Beijing can bear certain costs. It's more the risks that it doesn't go the way they want, yeah. right? And 
Hong Kong, just geographically, think about the city. It's not made up for sort of military interventions. These are narrow streets surrounded by really tall buildings. I mean, there's a really high risk that, you know, it starts to look more less like a Tiananmen Square and more like a Fallujah, at which case not only is it hugely embarrassing for China in the world, but a local problem in Hong Kong, which is self-contained within the special administrative region, becomes a national problem for Xi Jinping at a time when he's under pressure on so many other fronts. So I think the risks are just really high. I think the costs in a way can be borne, but I just don't know if, if the risks are too much. But at some point they'll do it. And it, it's again, it's so, so hard to know what they really think. And it's so, so hard for us to put ourselves in the head of someone like Xi Jinping and the Politburo and how they see what's going on in Hong Kong. So I want to shift away from this. But before we do, I just want to ask a completely unfair question, which is six months from now, if we sit down again, what will the situation look like? My best guess would be something like what happened after the Umbrella Revolution, but much more intense. So basically, if things do die down at some point, just because people get tired of being on the streets, you can certainly expect the repression to be ratcheted up significantly using the civil service, using the legal system, using pressure on companies to fire people who've been involved with the protest movement. So I think you can expect basically a united front strategy across politics, society, uh, the judicial system, To make sure this never happens again. Yeah, to try and uh, reduce the chances. Basically, the way I see it is cutting off avenues for opposition and increasing the costs of dissent. And those are the two things that happened after Occupy, where you had this generation of young politicians. Occupy referring to the the 2014 protests. Yeah. uh, yeah. So you you had something similar after the 2014 protests where young people, uh, for example, formed political parties, got elected. Then they got kicked out. We had people kidnapped off the streets of Hong Kong. We had the vibrant publishing industry shut down. So I think we're going to see the pressures increase across all sectors of society. But I do think in a way, it suits Beijing to let the Hong Kong police, the Hong Kong government, Hong Kong companies, foreign companies in Hong Kong bear the brunt of this because they're much more effective, frankly, in the Hong Kong context at, at managing and pressuring people. And two, it, they act as a sort of sponge, right, protecting uh, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party from right. directly take, bearing the brunt of any backlash. Right. And I would say, by the way, using proxies to govern seems to me to be a hallmark of the Xi Jinping era where we see him in many ways, stand in the back as some of these crises emerge. I mean, it's one of the things with U.S.-China relations, Xi Jinping really hasn't been out front leading on it. He's been allowing proxies like Liu He to be taking most of the brunt. So you just mentioned uh, a moment ago Hong Kong or Beijing using foreign companies as a, as a central tool to ratchet up the cost of dissenting. And so we've seen a number of companies which have been dragged into this. And the most recent one is over the weekend, we saw the general manager of the Houston Rockets, a U.S. US basketball team named Daryl Morey tweet out a brief statement of support for Hong Kong protesters. And the reaction, I have to say, has been extraordinary, both from the NBA and from China. So his tweet's been taken down, but he put up a tweet uh, 19 hours ago after this contretemps really kicked off where he said, I did not intend my tweet to cause any offense to Rockets fans and friends of mine in China. I was merely voicing one thought based on one interpretation of one complicated event. It sounds like one of those formulations the CCP does, the three ones. I've had a lot of opportunities since that tweet to hear and consider other perspectives. And he goes on another tweet to say, tweets are my own and no way represent the Rockets and NBA. The problem was that didn't seem to do the trick. And we've now seen the Rockets, uh, essentially persona non grata in China, CCTV5, 
will no longer carry their matches. Tencent, which was carrying them online, will not carry them. Uh, we've seen people really back away quite quickly. So Yao Ming, who's the head of the Chinese Basketball Association, the CBA, has cut off ties with them. Joe Tsai, who's the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, came out with a statement on Facebook uh, which I thought was pretty clunky, but trying to saying essentially free speech is kind of an American right. It's not something that applies to China, where we have very complex historical reasons. He gave a potted history of the Opium War. But this touches on this issue of, I don't want to take your line, but you were saying there's this enduring debate right now about is Beijing just making the world safe for authoritarian China, or is it looking to export its values? And the case of NBA seems to be an interesting test case of that. But I wonder if you could speak to that. But you, you also had made some observations about this discussion, which is happening in Australia. We've seen in Canada, Australia, around the world, pro-Hong Kong protests and pro-Beijing counter-protests, which show these issues spreading around the world. So what, what is your take? I don't know if you have any thoughts on where this MBA issue fits in, but more broadly speaking, how the Hong Kong protests are, are resonating around the world and what Beijing is doing to make sure its narrative on this is the predominant narrative. Well, as you're saying, I, I think there's this debate at the moment where on the one hand, there are people talking about a new Cold War and you know really bringing up memories of Soviet Union trying to export its system around the world and obviously the US um, doing the same to an extent or at least trying to destabilize regimes that it thought were you know put there or backed by the Soviet Union and on the other hand you know there's a, there's a counter argument saying no China only cares about its core interests of territorial integrity South China Sea Taiwan Hong Kong and you know so long as they're protected it, it's not too worried about everything else in the end it just wants to make sure the Communist Party can stay in power in China and and they're fine they don't need to do anything Else. But but I think it misses the point, really, the debate on, on both sides, because what I see happening is that you have an authoritarian regime that's obviously very powerful. Its global power is increasing economically, politically, and everything else. And the rest of the world is also deeply interconnected with China. And so no, it's no longer a question of choice, either for, for the Communist Party or for the rest of the world, whether these issues and disputes crop up. They do, because China is everywhere. And so people outside, want, and, in, and people who are from China outside want to comment on it, and then it becomes a core interest for China, whether it's students in Australia uh, debating Hong Kong, or whether it's the general manager of a basketball team in the US. So I think that makes things really difficult on, on both sides to manage these sorts of tensions. And obviously, companies often get caught in the middle, and generally, they're not going to stand up for values, they're going to stand up for making money. And people see you know huge opportunities in China still, even despite all the talk about it getting harder for foreign investors um, to access the Chinese market or to compete with their Chinese rivals. Still, sort of the dream of making huge amounts of money in China is so big that people will, will give in. And I guess for individual companies, that is their right to do so. Um, but I think the, that MBA case is, is symbolic of the challenge for many institutions around the world who haven't really thought about what's their policy towards China. They don't think they need one. But in fact, they will, um, because anyone who does business there is probably going to bump into these issues because they're so live now. I mean, the other point worth mentioning is partly this is a function of how global Hong Kong is, that so many people have from the outside world have traveled th to Hong Kong, through Hong Kong, know people who live there or who are from there. And so it really has a high degree of visibility, much more so than, say, the you know, repression of the Uyghurs, which is a kind of much more 
pressing and devastating human rights issue. But in feels more feels more distant and remote to most people. Yeah, they, they can't connect with yeah. it. Whereas Hong Kong sort yes. of is a global issue. So yeah, it's it's really challenging. And in a way, it's sort of two sides of global China because Hong Kong is part of China. Um, and that the sort of battle within that is being played out, you know, from Sydney to to Houston, which is quite incredible to see just as a, a symbol of, of the global interconnected nature of China and how this is just going to be a very difficult issue to manage on, on all sides. Just to stay on the NBA thing for a second, and not the specifics of it, but more the symbolic role it plays and also thinking of this as, as again, you talk about these issues we're going to bump up against moving forward. Why do you think it is that China had to, or Beijing had to immediately react with such ferocity? So this is one tweet Okay, so he's got 200,000 followers, but you'd imagine these are mostly, you know, basketball fans. Imagine Beijing had not commented on this tweet, right? I imagine the tweet would have gone noticed by some percentage of those 250,000, but that would have been end of story. Whereas now I've noticed there's been an extraordinary amount of uh, opprobrium aimed at Beijing. And, and I should mention here, a few days ago, South Park came out with its newest episode, which looks like it was created in response to the events that just happened with the NBA, but in fact, it predated it by a few days. But the entire narrative of that episode was companies selling their soul to get access to the Chinese market. And once they're, once they're there, essentially being beaten up and thrown around and, and used by China, the response by China to Daryl Morey's tweet is a confirmation of the underlying narrative in that South Park episode. Why do you think Beijing doesn't essentially let some of these things pass by? Why does it sort of get the whole system geared up where you have this from the Chinese Basketball Association to Joe Tsai, the co-founder of Alibaba and co-owner of the Nets? I mean, this now is all over the globe. You've got NBA players now. You know, the NBA put out a statement saying that distancing themselves from Maury saying, you know, he's hurt the feeling of the Chinese people. You have NBA basketball players now coming out with statements saying how much they love China. Why couldn't they just let this pass? Is there something fundamental to the political system that is just incapable of essentially turning the other cheek? Well, I think it's a, it's a similar question with Hong Kong, right? It's clear that you would have much less of a nationalist movement in Hong Kong if Hong Kong has just been given a clear path to democracy. And there would have been a way to incorporate that Hong Kongness uh, within China and embrace it rather than standing in opposition to it. So I think, yeah, partly the Communist Party finds it really, really hard. And you know, they've been talking about things like peaceful evolution, which sounds very nice to your eye, as being the greatest threat to the party for a long, long time. And there's understandable reasons Of course, peaceful evolution, they, they mean that, that regime change forced by, you know, outside powers through sort of subterfuge. Well, and also, but through things like promoting the rule of law, right. uh, you know, through soft things, not necessarily through hard, hard change. So I think, yeah, it's generally they don't like to turn the other cheek. I think partly, obviously, there's a public opinion question here, because when I was living in Hong Kong, I saw so many of these sort of boycotts against different companies, and quite a few of them did come from the ground up. And, you know, it's kind of hard to see, especially when social media is so censored in China and the media is controlled by the party, where does sort of public opinion start and Weibo start? and the Global Times end, like where are the lines between those things and who is pushing who? Uh, so I think it's it's hard to see. But the other thing I'd say is these company boycotts are actually quite effective mm. in forcing companies to change their line. In contrast, I think with the country boycotts, where the actual economic damage, if you look at the evidence, is quite limited, right? I think we saw when Norway was hit with a ban on right. salmon, after a six-month disruption in its trade, it recovered either because China bought the salmon from elsewhere and that country then bought it from Norway or because it was 
was just being smuggled in through Hong Kong, quite likely too. But with companies, it's much more effective. So time and again, we've seen it work. So why not keep up the pressure? And you know, it's that old thing of killing the chicken to scare the monkeys. Other companies now, going to, other teams, I'm sure in the NBA, will be much, much more careful about this. And it does change the way the debate is framed. Uh, it makes people nervous about speaking out about the issues. Um, so I think it's quite effective as pressure on corporate interests. And you know, companies are really important to our societies. They you know impact the way consumers think about how many fans of the NBA, NBA there are in the US and around the world, impacts consumers. They also can pressure governments too. So I think it's quite a smart strategy, actually, to pressure companies. And it seems to have been effective in sort of changing the narrative. So the other example I'd give is, you know, companies like HSBC and Swire, these big sort of British groups who had Hong Kong as their main base. You know, in the past, they were seen as bridges between China and the West. And now they're really on the front line being squeezed by both sides. Um, so they're in a really difficult position. But I think if you think about it from Beijing's perspective, why should they allow these foreign entities to make huge amounts of money from their market unless they're going to sort of pay heed to their really important concerns about these core interests, which, you know, as we were saying earlier, at the end, these are things that are very important to the party, to the party's sense of legitimacy, and to its perceived ability to stay in power. Well, Ben, I want to thank you very much. That was a really fascinating conversation. Ben is the author of Generation HK, Seeking Identity in China's Shadow, and is now all the way out in Australia at the Lowy Institute, where he's the director for the Southeast Asia Project. Ben, thank you very much. Thanks, Jude. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 